Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I am featuring my guest, Dr. Zach Bush from the Beyond Biological Medicine series. This was one of my favorite interviews and conversations, and I thought that it would be wonderful to post now as we continue to think about how to create a resilient terrain for this modern time. So I hope that you enjoy my podcast with Dr. Zach Bush. I've been following his work for a long time and he's a hero in the world of terrain medicine. And really, I wanted him to really, with knowing biological medicine and a big tenant of biological medicine, we're always aiming at optimizing the individual's terrain, which means our microbiome, our ecosystem of life, as well as its intersection with our environmental exposures and our epigenetic expression. And we also tie into that our psycho-emotional health and our trauma history. And all of that makes us individual and unique. And a big goal of biological medicine is how we can make a resilient terrain so we can remain healthy and whole and live the lives we all want to live. And so with uh, Dr. Zach joining us, of course, we're recording this in the middle of um, 2020 and we cannot, you know, turn our eye on what's happening in the world. And, and it really rises the question, you know, how do we look at our individual terrain as well as the terrain of the planet? And how did this virus really take rise um, given what we know about terrain health? Beautiful. Yeah, we are at a very big tipping point of, of cognitive awareness of our vulnerabilities as species. And it's interesting that it, it happened to be a story about a virus that would capture the global attention as nothing ever has before to create an absolute pause to the you know massive generative consumptive machine that is humanity. And so I'm constantly intrigued by what what changes the behavior of humans. And perhaps it's not surprising in the end, but somewhat sad that we're so narcissistic that all of the data that we have that we're killing our planet, we're causing the sixth grade extinction, that we're looking towards our own extinction because of our destructive behavior wasn't enough to stop us. And instead it was this, the fear of this attack of an invader into our bodies of this, you know, feared virus that, you know, was told to us that would actually be the thing to make, make us freeze. And so in the end, not surprising because, it is that warfare mentality and it is the retreat from attack that tends to be the only thing that changes the direction of human history. And our history is certainly mired in war. And I think for the first time in history, we're turning our conflict and warlike mentality from one another towards, unfortunately, the microbiome and the virome. And we're, we're feeling attacked by Lyme and by viruses and by, you know, the, the potential for HIV to take over Africa, you know, all of these stories have been so immersive in the last two generations that we're somehow going to like be killed by the next pandemic when in fact, it's actually impossible that humans would be killed by a viral pandemic because in fact, we produced that virus. And so we would need a biologic rationale for, for producing that. And, you know, for, so that turns into a long story there, but the point being almost through an irrational consciousness or an irrational philosophy, we've done the right thing, which is to pause for a moment as a, as a species, as a global economy, as a global machinery, and, and take stock of what is the trend that we've created? Why are we vulnerable to illness and, and disease in new ways uh, each year? And what have we done, particularly in the United States, that we are seeing the highest mortality in the whole world from this virus? Like, wh what did we do to ourselves 
to have worse mortality than than any measured hospital in in around the globe. You know, we we have the worst mortality in New York hospitals. We we should be at the pinnacle of medical response and preparedness, and, and we proved ourselves to be among the worst. So. Uh, it's a real wake-up call to our country for sure, but I think just globally a wake-up call to humanity to say, what have we done and and what do we need to do to reverse this trend? And so many great points, and I've you know, listened through you, uh, to you throughout the years of tying the connections of you know how our terrain, both our soil, and then I want to tie that into our immune health, has really been you know struggling. So what has happened in America that has made us one of the most vulnerable countries and we see the rise? Maybe we probably, both of us have maybe different opinions than many uh, doctors out there of really the you know, how fearful we need to be about SARS-CoV-2, but given the fact of what we've seen in our society and people are getting quite ill from this illness, why are we taken down by something that should really move through a population more quickly and not see the death rates that we have seen in a country like America that should be, you know, really advanced in modern medicine? You know, we, we have one of the most advanced medical systems in the world, yet we're some of the sickest people in the world. Yeah, so the answer to that is, you know, rooted in a very old philosophy, you know, that certainly dates back a couple hundred years of terrain disruption. And so disease is the result of a lack of health and disease never attacks health. You know, like, and, and so that's one of the most important, I think, pivots that we need to make as Western medicine now is we need to stop thinking we're being attacked by cancer or infectious disease or autoimmune disease. Our immune system's not attacking us. Cancer's not attacking us. Viruses are not attacking us. These are all symptoms of a collapse of healthy biology. And we've proven this again and again in all-cause mortality studies. You can do cancer therapies of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy as they used to develop. And in those clinical trials that I used to be engaged with, we could, we could often show you know, 15 20%, 30% reduction in breast cancer mortality over a three-year period. But if you then ask the very you know, embarrassing question of did all-cause mortality change, the answer is no, and meaning that the same number of women died no matter what treatment we did. So we never changed all-cause mortality. All we did was change the reason they died. And so we may have slightly modified the cancer as the cause of death, but they died at the same time because cancer is not something that was causing death. Cancer is actually the symptom of the cause of death, which is a decline in biologic wellness. And that decline in biologic wellness directly relates to our greater terrain, our greater ecosystem around us. And that's what we've led the charge on in the United States is the destruction of that, that, that grander ecosystem around us. This was theoretical at the time of, you know, Bechamp and Pasteur, as they argued it out in the late 1800s. And Bechamp really had this beautiful realization through twin studies and great observational science that there was no such thing as germs attacking people. You know, two people in the same household could be exposed to the same germ, and one dies, one doesn't even get sick. So it was clear that it wasn't like the germ that was causing death, but to him it was obvious that the terrain of one individual can be remarkably different, even if their genetics are identical. And so it's the change in the greater environment around those people he, he had the theory of. And, of course, Pasteur argued no germs are there to attack you and we need to kill all these germs. And so, you know, the, the term pasteurization, of course, would prove that Pasteur won the argument. And so we've marched down this extraordinary path over the last hundred years to try to kill all of the, the pathogens in our food and water and body and skin. And we, you know, everybody's pumping alcohol and all kinds of awful, you know, carcinogenic 
cleansers into their households right now and onto their skin and spraying their toxic chemicals before they can go to the preschool. Like it's just like on one level, total insanity, but it makes sense only in the context of the belief that we are at war with all other germs. Where this really broke down, of course, and, and where this has become evidence-based and not a theoretical discussion is through the, the advent of genomics. And so, you know, starting the late 1990s, as we started to really decode genomes of bacteria, fungi, and ultimately the human, we come to realize that it's a continuum. It's a genetic continuum. And importantly, a disruption in the genetic, uh, you know, biodiversity of our microbial life in and around us could be predictive of the diseases we would then manifest. And so in the cancer world, we could show if you lose these bacteria from the gut, you end up with colon cancer. If you lose these, and that kind of made sense. Well, maybe there's some sort of correlation of the bacteria there. Maybe they're informed, maybe they're not. But then, you know, how did it make sense there? If you miss these other bacteria, you start to get breast cancer. And you miss these bacteria, you suddenly get prostate cancer. And you miss these bacteria, you get lung cancer. It's like, it just didn't fit into my paradigm as a, as a cancer researcher and chemotherapy developer that the bacteria in the gut could have anything to do the belief of this complex genomic, you know, DNA injury accumulation that would lead to a cancer cell didn't fit into our algorithms or our, our worldview or story of carcinogenesis at all. And so then it took, you know, another few years, you know, 2012 to 2014, before we could start to do the genomics of tissue and find out that it's not just the gut that's seeing these perturbations in the microbiome. It's actually, it turns out there's an organic garden at every single organ. And when you look at the healthy human breast, the dominant species among a very complex ecosystem in the healthy human breast is sphingomonas. Very cool, anaero uh, I'm sorry, aerobic bacteria that's capable of a lot of interesting generative capacity for nutrients and stuff in the breast. And interestingly, the, that woman who then gets breast cancer in one of her breasts, if you go and biopsy that breast, you find out that sphingomonas is gone and replacing that as the dominant species is methylobacterium rate tolerance. And methylobacterium happens to, to be an anaerobe and can produce energy in, in anaerobic spaces in areas of high acidity, whereas sphingomonas can't exist there. And so as you put stress on an organism, you can change the microbiome. The initial thought that maybe methylobacterium was causing breast cancer because it was present in every single tumor that could be found in the breast, that, that theory was blown out of the water when they did the, the quantitative analysis to show that, in fact, the less methylobacterium present in the cancer, the more aggressive that tumor would become to kill the woman faster. And so it was sudden realization of, oh my God, the microbiome is adapting to a toxic environment and trying to be protective, trying to do chaos and damage control for the woman's breast. And if we then move in with chemotherapy and other you know, cytotoxic agents, antibiotics and the rest, and we sterilize that breast, the chances of that woman dying from her tumors down the road accelerates. And so uh, we can then show that at the very large scale. So this is antibiotic use at the individual level, but on the, on the national level, we can look at the cancer maps before 1996 and following the advent of you know, GMO herbicides that are potent antibiotics in our soil systems. And, and, and so if we look at that decade from 1996 to 2006, we realized we flipped the cancer map in the United States. And so we had had dominant cancer death in the Northeast and Northwest since the beginning of cancer record keeping. There had never been an epicenter of, of cancer morbidity mortality in, in the South. But in that 10-year period, the cancer map reversed and suddenly it was Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, 
you know, down into Mississippi, Louisiana, that were the hot spot of the whole nation. Cancer went up everywhere, but it exploded down south. And so in 1996, we debuted the genetically modified Roundup Ready crops and started spraying, you know, exponentially more Roundup into our system than we'd ever experienced. And this is a water-soluble toxin, which means that as it's sprayed into the soils of the whole Midwest and Northwest and North Central United States, we would collect 85, 90% of all of the spray in the United States into a single water system that ends in the last 90 miles of the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And that's, of course, Cancer Alley. That's the highest rates of cancer in the whole developed world now. What we showed on a population scale is if you put broad-spectrum antibiotics into the system, you kill the microbiome of the environment around us, our terrain suffers. And it's direct and indirect, meaning that the herbicide goes, you know, aerosolized in the in the humidity around our water systems as it evaporates. Seventy-five percent of the air breathed in along this whole region is positive for glyphosate. Seventy-five percent of the rainfall that results from that that evaporation and consolidation and return is contaminated with Roundup. So we're steeped in it environmentally. And then, of course, as soon as we take a bite of food or a drink of water in the United States, doesn't matter what you eat, organic, non-organic you're going to have residues of glyphosate and a number of other toxins in there. But glyphosate is an interesting one because of its physiology as an antibiotic, antifungal, antiparasite. So it kills protozoa all the way to the fungi, all the bacteria, and disrupts that biologic matrix of the organic garden within our gut and ultimately within the breast and all the other human tissues. If you haven't kept up with the microbiome story, it's amazing to realize that the brain is now recognized to have its own organic garden. There's good microbiome in the brain. Uh, the fact that Candida glabrata is terrifying yeast form that shows up in bone marrow transplant units when we destroy the human immune system with chemo and everything else. Turns out that the brain is supposed to have Candida glabrata in all sorts of forms. And when we get start to get brain damage from ne degenerative neurologic conditions like Alzheimer's, Candida glabrata is the first response system and it will build a mycelial network uh, that is, it looks like mycelium, but it's actually a, a hyphal, uh, a polyhyphae form uh, of, of the, the fungi. It's not a yeast at, at that stage. Candida glabrata transforms into this hyphae format seemingly to bring nutrients into this damaged part of the brain. And again, when it was first discovered that all these Alzheimer's brains stain positive for candida glabrata around the area of damage, it's like, oh, well, candida glabrata must be an infectious disease it's causing a problem. And then, of course, you do the analysis quantitatively and find out, holy cow, the more candida glabrata, the better the woman does. And so, you know, we're starting to realize that we have dams and vilified the microbiome over and over and over again, only to find out in the end that it doesn't matter if you're talking about a farm or a human body, the microbiome is always doing the right thing. In fact, it has to do the right thing because it's how life was created. We created biodiversity and our capacity for adaptation at the genetic level through the microbiome. So many wonderful points, and I, I don't want to ever stop you in your thought process, but just um, you know, bringing this back to terrain health and you know the immune system. Here we are, and again, 2020, and um, a lot of patients who are listening, and a lot of uh, practitioners who are listening to this biological medicine speaker series. Even though we know and we live and breathe terrain medicine, we know and embrace everything you see. We get into those cycles of you know, someone brings their Lyme test, and then their GI MAP test, and then their 
viral panel and, you know, their, you know, what have you. We look at all of these pathogens that seem extremely out of balance. And we do get short-lived, I would say, results when we target certain pathogens, try to reduce that burden. But it seems to be a vicious cycle that we cannot, it, it doesn't translate into immediate health and recovery that our patients still are staying with us. And so, of course, we also acknowledge this environmental burden and how that is probably one of the signals or one of the responses of the, the pathogens are there because of the environmental toxicants. But I guess what I'm trying to relate to the people who are listening and your brilliance is how do we reconcile this with treating people, right? So how do we start understanding, okay, that the microbiome is always trying to restore our health, always trying to reach homeostasis, but we're polluted. We're a polluted body. We're a polluted ecosystem. And how do we start resolving this in, in, our, in our health? You know, it's a challenge for all of us. Uh, you know, anybody who's spent decades in, in academic medicine, it's so hard to lo lose the concept of pathogen. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm really working on this in my own life and my own scientific philosophy so that I can ask more and more advanced questions of our science lab and our clinic, which is you know, really the adoption of the realization that there is no such thing as a bad bacteria, protozoa, fungi, virus. They're all part of a biodiverse ecosystem that has you know, a billion niches in it, you know, and so every organism playing a niche within this in, in critical balance of an ecosystem. And when the ecosystem is damaged, there's a very well-established process for recovery in the microbiome, and it's hierarchical. And so what tends to happen, as you can start to think through your own clinic experience, I think you're going to realize this happens every day in your clinic, for all of you listening, is that you start with what looks like a, a bacterial problem. As we start to attack that microbial you know, belief of pathogens and overgrowth and all of this concept of kind of overwhelming presence of bacteria, we can quickly see the emergence of candida and other yeast form. And so as we destroy the bacterial ecosystem of biodiversity, we're going to predispose the whole system to the overgrowth now of these fungi forms. And so the fungi now appearing as yeast or hyphal forms or whatever they need to come in are a response system to that loss of microbial digestion, metabolism, and the rest. And so it's, it's so fascinating to then throw, see somebody throw it on an antifungal or you know, an anti-yeast regimen, and pretty soon they've got you know, a decline in function again. And this time, as we do announce the bloodstream or whatnot, we find out that, oh my gosh, there's all these retroviruses and all of this kind of you know, information traveling through the bloodstream, maybe that's the problem. So then, or we find a parasite and so the parasite's there now we go attack the parasite. And so whether it's a protozoa or viruses or next, you, know, you can start to see that we are, by disrupting that terrain, we are demanding that the system respond at more and more elemental levels of microbial function. And when you fully wiped out the microbiome, all you have left is the virome. The virome is non-living entities. And so we have severely miscategorized viruses as if they were part of the microbiome, when in fact viruses are just the secretions of the microbiome and the eukaryotic community in, in their effort to communicate. And so the viruses are the result of genomic stress. And so when we see lots of retroviruses, RNA viruses, DNA viruses in the environment of you know, Hubei or you know, Wuhan or whatever part of China, or you, you know, go to New York City and you say, oh, there's all these viruses and all this, it must be attacking us. 
the fundamental reality is these are environments in which we've put the, the biology in such a stress state that it's sending out an adaptation signal at the genetic level all the time, trying to find loopholes around the toxicity that we've created at, with our toxic behaviors, with our combative kind of antimicrobial behaviors. And so as we ratchet up the stress on the terrain, whether it's in your one patient or at the ecosystem level, the ecosystem has no choice but to start sending out more and more biromic information to try to find loopholes of adaptation. We are built to absorb those asymptomatically. We should not have a symptom from encountering a virus, nor should we ever overexpress that virus if we have a healthy state of, of affairs in ourselves. The only way that we can reach an abnormal state of viromic communication is if we've lost enzymatic function in our in ourselves. We are not antibody-mediated viral warfare. Uh, that is a, a mistaken old paradigm. The fact that everybody's running around, you know, checking antibodies for SARS and trying to do a vaccine to induce an antibody response, none of that is based in science. We have no no evidence that the formation of viruses ever prevents a virus from entering a cell. In fact, that's not how those antibodies work. Those antibodies are formed to proteins produced by the virus once the virus is in a, in, in a replicating status. But the RNA ribosome that controls for the, the expression of that viral genome is one of the most exquisitely controlled and regulated functions within the human body. It does not happen by mistake. We have this old belief that viruses take over the genomic machinery of the human cell and start to produce tons of viruses against our will. That's impossible now that we know how regulated RNA ribosomes are. It's now estimated that there's over 90 you know, viral proteins that have to be present as co-repressors and activators on the ribosome before it can make or repeat a single RNA strand or DNA strand of a viral input. And so in the end, if we see viral production happening, it's either because we need it, which means there's lots of damaged cells that need to be replaced. And that's one of the best ways to clean up a damaged system is to, to lyse the cells with, with viral protein production. And so uh, when we see lysing of cells, we think, oh, that person's sick because they have a, a low-grade fever and headache and sore throat. That, there's no evidence that that sickness is bad for that person. In fact, that's probably how they clean up cancer, correct autoimmune dysfunction, all kinds of things, because they're, they're cleansing. They're literally using the genetic replication material to lyse damaged cells that have enzyme pathways that are so disrupted that they're, if we don't kill that cell with a virus, they're going to become a cancer cell. And we see this you know, playing out with SARS. The people that are dying from this condition die weeks or months after the virus was present from complications of dysfunctional terrain that have nothing to do with the virus. The people that are dying are people with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and, and uh, end-stage kidney disease or advanced kidney disease. Those, th those three conditions have nothing to do with the physiology of uh, the way in which SARS-CoV-2 uh, enters the, the cell through an ACE2 receptor and gets integrated into the genome, and then we decide whether or not to regulate that RNA ribosome into a production process or not. But interestingly, if that cell, you know, if that individual has lots of damage throughout the vascular system, which is, has a ton of ACE2 receptor in it, we'll start to lyse those cells to cause a replacement event. If that patient has pharmaceutical or pharmacologic you know, blocks on that repair system of the vascular system, we're going to see a failure of the replacement and regeneration, and all you get is viral clearing without any replacement, and now the person 
is left in a degraded state of biology, and they become prone to the downstream consequences of hypoxia and the like that are not due to the virus, but they're due to inflammatory cytokines in the vascular tree due to a failure to respond to this cleanup system that the virus has inspired. And so this is a fascinating you know, reality that whether we're talking about SIBO in the small gut, candida in the mouth or, or vaginal canal, or viromics in the bloodstream, all of this is occurring due to a failure to adapt to you know, microbial you know, diversification or microbial repair efforts. And so this is, you know, a, a really grave mistake that we've made as a public health, you know, media in that we've made it sound like people are dying from the virus when in fact the virus is only present in the bloodstream for three days and is clear from the bloodstream simply two to three days, within two to three days of first symptoms. And people aren't presenting the hospital system until their, their virome is typically already on the decline. And then they die you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, three months later, and we say it's a SARS death or a COVID death or a MERS death, depending on which pandemic we're in, when in fact there was no virus present when that person died. Uh, that person died from an, an abnormal response or a pharmaceuticalized you know, damage downstream of a virus that was trying to assist with our pair regeneration process. As you're speaking, I keep on thinking like, how do we reconcile these completely disparate theories, right? Here we are, you know, I live in Seattle, Washington, you know, masks are mandated there, you know, um, everyone is again, as you said, spraying themselves with, you know, different, different disinfectants. You know, there's talk of just, you know, hold tight until we get a vaccine, which you've just said doesn't even make sense. And so looking at the virus in this whole different paradigm as, you know, really coming as a helper in some biological way. I mean, when we, when we get down to what you've shared. So how do we reconcile these worlds and how do we move forward? I mean, we're all, I know everyone who's listening and everyone in our communities really want to, you know, give people information so they can have this other understanding, but how do, how do we give people solutions and move forward with this completely different mindset? Uh, I, I think that's the million dollar question, I guess, in the end, or the trillion dollar question. you in charge of, you know, this, yeah, you know. Million dollar question, because now you're not talking about science, you're talking about uh, human behavior and philosophy. Yeah, it's true, yeah. And um, I think that what's happened is we've entered, entered our current crisis of economic collapse and, you know, uh, public health response through irrational behavior, through irrational science, through irrational things. So there is no rational resolution to this crap. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think we're going to need an irrational endpoint, which is going to be a vaccine. And mm -hmm. that vaccine is going to unfortunately injure millions and millions of people. We will be fortunate if more people don't die from the, the, the vaccine than ever did from complications downstream of the virus itself. The vaccine trials that are ongoing are showing extremely concerning results that have been shown in every other RNA vaccine that we've ever attempted, which is it shows hypersensitization at these super antigen effects where there's so much antibody response to a single protein that if they ever get exposed, they're going to go into a cytokine storm and die of complications of immune dysfunction within hours uh, of exposure. This can happen. And, and we're showing that same propensity in, in the human trial that was just done on the Dr. Fauci you know, and his company's uh, vaccine trial. Uh, we saw a third of those high-dose patients end up in the hospital from multiple different types of direct complications. But the sensitivity one is the one I'm most concerned about because that means we could have 15 to 20% of the entire vaccinated population going to have a very rapid death event if, the, if 
they see SARS next year or SARS-CoV-2. And so uh, th- this is, you know, a very interesting phenomenon where we're going to take an irrational scientific response, which is that RNA viruses don't actually come into balance with the human genome through antibody interaction. It all is at the ribosomal level, all at the, the protein regulation, the regulation of protein synthesis from that RNA strand is the regulatory step. And that has nothing to do with an antibody. So, you know, we're, but we're going to take this irrational, like band-aid on the end stage of, of any immune system's effort for balance. And we're going to tap that on there knowing full well, and you've already heard Fauci and other people say, you know what, antibodies positive to, because you've been exposed to virus doesn't even protect you from the virus. Well, then that's, I would say that's completely true. Then why do you think that a vaccine that's in death inducing an inferior immune response is going to somehow protect us? So they've already had to admit the real science, if you will, which is antibodies are not the way in which we prevent viral infection. It's entirely through enzymatic and co-repressor, co-activator, you know, protein synthesis at the, at the viral protein level and, and at the end at the, the ribosomal RNA level that we would come into balance. So unfortunately, in response to your answer, there is no rational resolution. We are going to walk around with masks because these poor governors have been given zero real science to really react to. They're just given full responsibility for any deaths in their state, which is ludicrous. And so, you know, they've given 100% of responsibility to respond correctly, given no science as to how to respond correctly. And all that they're left with is a rational response of don't let anybody stand next to each other and put a mask on. When we've, in fact, proved that even the N95 mask doesn't contain influenza or COVID. In fact, if you stick a mask, an N95 you know, respiratory mask on a, a patient with COVID or influenza and let them breathe through that for six hours, you can then go swab the inside of that mask and there's zero viral genomic information there. And it, instead, it's all on the outside of the mask, which demonstrates that the mask doesn't block the transit of the virus across that mask at all. In fact, it looks to accelerate the, the deposition of viruses in its immediate environment. And the reason it does that is through things like the Bernoulli's principle of, of airflow. You put a mask on, you are going from a low pressure exhalation from the lung in a large airway, and then forcing that same volume of air through nanoparticle size gaps within your plastic mesh. And so you have to have a massive acceleration of the airflow in that millimeter or two as it goes through the filter of the mask. And in that rapid phase, it's picking up every viral particle available and shoving it through the mask because of the high velocity of the airflow. And it immediately enters a low pressure environment on the other side of that that one millimeter barrier. And so it creates an eddy, if you will, and you're going to get this eddy effect. So now your face and your mask and and the immediate area around you is going to have an increased amount of viral density or expression going on or deposition going on. And so it's just... You know, so we know that about masks, and Dr. Fauci came out early to say, you know, we know masks don't work in asymptomatic people, especially, and blah, 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 and blah, blah. Now, you know, they say, well, now there's virus everywhere, and, you know, they've come up with all kinds of new reasons why suddenly everybody needs masks, but I think it's pretty clear by the science that we have right now that the only reason that masks are being used is because it's the only thing that appears to be a rational response to this irrational crisis that we have. And so we're going to continue to have to tolerate or, you know, have a revolution, one of the two, I guess. But I think 
in the pick your battle kind of mindset, I'm, I'm trying to help my, myself because I, I go into a, a, a pretty livid state about masks on a daily basis when I have to put these things on in ludicrous situations. And, you know, how you can walk into a restaurant and have to be masked and then you can sit down at your table and get to take your mask off made no sense whatsoever. So it just again and again, we're faced with these irrational regulatory behaviors. But in the end, I just have to continue to remind myself these poor regulators, the poor health department, the poor state, you know, governors, they're being told that they're and of course, this is the CDC and the WHO and NIH all coming after these guys so that they'll continue to to hold the fear paradigm in place long enough for the vaccine to be approved and go into use. And we already know this vaccine, this, this virus is going to be in a complete homeostasis with the human species within another year because it's happened every time we've had a new coronavirus strain happen. It goes into balance with the population within two years, and we never see it causing a problem again. And so it's going to happen again. It, it'll be gone by next fall or at the very least by the you know, middle of next winter irregardless of what we do with a vaccine. And that's been proven with SARS in 2002, MERS with 2012, and just the general you know, seasonal coronavirus that causes the, the common cold. These things do not persist in the environment with the same genomics because the genomics of these things are that of adaptation. And once they're ubiquitous in the environment, we will go into an adaptive, resilient relationship. We will take on that adaptive format of the, of the new genetic code and we no longer need another update. And so we'll always have an enzymatic relationship that shuts down that RNA production of you know, SARS-CoV-2 because we already have that genomic update. So we're going to be able to, I, that's, that's already in the databank. We don't, we don't need more information there. We'll keep that protein suppressed. And so you know, this is going to happen irregardless of what we think you know, is going to happen with this thing. But I, I think how it plays out, we're going to have to do this silly song and dance for the rest of this winter and leading into next spring, and then they're going to release, you know, some sort of ridiculous, you know, ad campaign about, you know, if you want to stop wearing a mask, then you have to get this injection. And then we're going to have to have a decision as a population. Are we really going to let them, you know, mandate irrational scientific or irrational public health demands until we are compliant with an irrational scientific intervention or, or technological intervention that's not safe? And we're going to have to decide that as a population. And I think it will be the most contentious, most hard-fought thing. And I think the government has overstepped themselves so many times in recent months uh, with, you know, kind of showing their full hand that they're taking an irrational approach to making billions of dollars through this vaccine program. That I, I think that it's starting to become almost intolerable to the American public as a whole to imagine that we're going to stoop this low to be forced into this thing. I don't know where we are. Maybe we're, we're still in kind of a lemming mode and we're willing to accept martial law until we're all stepping in line. Or maybe we're really ready for a social revolution. And I don't think it needs to be violent revolution. I think we have a social revolution where we finally reject this, this scientific, you know, Armageddon type of approach that the NIH and CDC are so excited to roll out and just explain to them, no, there's too many physicians and scientists that understand that the train can be healed and therefore, we will become resilient. And there's no reason for us to go down this avenue at all anymore. 30 years of great science showing us that we were wrong about germ theory, that it is terrain, 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 whether it's macro ecosystem or micro ecosystem. And if we fix that, we're not going to see the same disease prevalence of the acute and you know, vulnerability of, of a seasonal flu or the chronic vulnerability of chronic disease as we've seen it. Well, thank you for you know those words of wisdom. And I think people just need to continue to 
you know, find truth where it, it's very limited right now where we can access it. But I just really appreciate you spending the time on this because whether, you know, in, in our communities, even, you know, we get obviously in our patient population, the people who are drawn to us, they're already resonating with us. But it's interesting. I see within my own peers that they didn't quite understand what I did or, you know, what I do with medicine, but they're starting to want to know more or wake up. And there's some, you know, for a lot more people than I think uh, the media shares, there are people who are very uncomfortable with what's going on and really want another uh, framework to understand. And so um, I, I appreciate you spending some time on that, Dr. Zach. And before I know you're very solutions focused and you've done some wonderful things with um, the companies and the work that you're doing, and I want to spend some time on that, but just to tie a bow back on this idea, you know, again, with a, a lot of the people who are listening here, they've been told they have persistent Lyme disease or these, you know, multi-systemic infections. And so would you say that um, Lyme is another evolutionary update and that's why we're seeing it more, you know, as an epidemic or more ubiquitous in our environment and more, you know, people are being exposed to this um, now. Just any, um, I know we could spend another hour on that, but just I would love to hear some insights around that because um, there's a lot of questions still about the role of Lyme and um, how it's impacting our terrain. Yeah, if we take a look at those maps that I mentioned earlier around the cancer, you know, map of the United States reversing between 1996 and 2006, we did the same thing with rickettsial disease and and Lyme. And so, if you remember, you know, back in the day when we went through medical, well, when I went to medical school in the in the you know early 90s and stuff, we were being taught that the epicenter of uh, the Lyme condition was up in Vermont and New Hampshire and kind of the Northeast there. Now, if you look at the epicenters of rickettsial disease, including, you know, something like Lyme, uh, you will find it right in the Midwest. So it's like, you know, Ohio into Tennessee, Kentucky, down into Mississippi, Louisiana. And so it's the same pattern where we never used to have rickettsial conditions down there, but it's now there in, in abundance. And so we can say, well, what's the relationship then between this antibiotic role of herbicide Roundup being put into that whole water system and the emergence and, and change in, in demographic and the geographics of a, a spirochete like Borrelia burgdorferi? And Borrelia, as you recall, is just one of the many spirochetes in our body. Uh, we have you know, over a dozen species of spirochete in the normal mouth floor. I think it's probably in the hundreds, but we've definitely categorized at least, you know, 24 or so species of spirochete in the mouth, and that's normal flora. And so spirochetes are a normal part of microbiologic, you know, species and the biodiversity they're in. And if you go over to Europe, for example, and you study the condition of Lyme in medical school there or clinically, you find out that nobody grows Borrelia burgdorferi or identifies antibodies to it. Instead, it's a different spirochete that's causing the same syndrome across the ocean there. So in the end, I can think we can show that this Koch's postulates of infectious disease don't even hold up in that it's not the same pathogen. I can have Borrelia burgdorferi in, in my body and have absolutely no symptoms, so it's not you know, directly infectious. I can then go to another country and I can induce the exact same syndrome through a different spirochete with similar vulnerability at the biologic train. And so it, it doesn't hold up as an infectious agent on that population scale. But then if you look deeper into the tissue with electron microscopy of patients that have active Lyme condition, uh, what you'll find is single spirochetes trafficking between human cells with no inflammation or damage behind them. 
it literally is a single spirochete in a fit in a in a you know wide phase uh, microscope that you're looking at you know a few thousand cells at once of human terrain, and that one spirochete is traveling up through different planes of tissue across the gut into the into the you know the gulf the, the lymphatic tissue beyond into the blood vessel. So these things can travel, but they never do damage. They don't show any inflammatory results. They don't do any cellular damage. And, and the extracellular matrix is literally, literally letting them through the space at every juncture. They can, they're free to graze wherever they need to. And if you take a look at the role of the spirochete in uh, the terrain of, of the human body or the terrain of our environment, it's critical. Uh, these, these organisms are critical in the cleanup of toxins that are, uh, not, that our human metabolism isn't capable of cleaning up, namely, for example, sulfur compounds. And so sulfur compounds are, can't be turned into energy by the human genome or, or by the mitochondria that live within us. And so we need an alternate microbe to clean up high, high concentrations of sulfur in our tissues. And the uh, Borrelia and many other species of spirochetes are called hemoheterotrophs in that they can consume multiple moieties on, the, on that periodic chart and turn them into energy. So they could use carbon compounds, carbohydrate or fat compound, or they can use a sulfur compound, and they can convert that to, to electron energy as we would a carbohydrate or a fat. And so the, the spirochete is going to find a role within the physiology of the human whenever there's an abundance of toxicity that's occurred. And over and over again, I find the most successful Lyme clinics have stopped trying to kill anything and instead just change the train. And so come in, we're going to detox you. We're going to try to get the heavy metals out. We're going to get all the heavy metal out of your mouth for one thing. And then we're going to change the gut train and we're going to do all this stuff. And then the patient starts getting better and you never attack Lyme or or retrovirus or anything else that that somebody else has claimed as a pathogen making them sick. And so I know by, you know, all of these levels of evidence that we have the wrong model of Lyme disease in the allopathic model. There is no disease caused by the Lyme we have dis-ease in the body, though the Lyme is actually there trying to help, just as methylobacterium is trying to help the woman with breast cancer or candida glabrata is trying to help the woman with Alzheimer's. The microbiome is always doing the right thing to adapt to injury, toxicity, stress, you know, et cetera, within the micro or macro ecosystem of the body or terrain around us. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And that's a lot of the work that we do at Sophia and that we've learned over the years. It's just a lot of the speakers um, on the speaker series, we talk about the mouth and the lymphatic system and the extracellular matrix and all the toxicants that we're continually exposed uh, to. And I believe that's really, you know, in the last few decades, there's just been a rise in all of these, not only glyphosate, but a lot of these other ubiquitous chemicals in our environment that are making us sick. And so, no, I, I, I love this conversation and I love the direction of your work. And you've, you know, knowing what you know and the research that you've done, you've turned your energy into a lot of things, but you've um, created a product now called you know, Ion, we used it when it started as Restore and now Ion. Um, can you just share what you've created? And we love we love that we use that at Sophia. And you also not only have an oral form, but also the, the sinuses are a huge microbiome that I feel that there's a lot of dysbiosis um, in our patients. So can you share a little bit about what you've created? Yeah, uh, my excitement is that I didn't create anything. This is entirely from Mother Nature. And so uh, Mother Nature is just so brilliant. And ultimately, you know, it's easy to get teared up and emotional over the reality of her grace. You know, this is 
this journey into this product line was through uh, my nutrition center that I, I left the university in 2010, started a nutrition center in, in the poorest county of Virginia, trying to find a food curriculum that would help impoverished peoples find health and food sovereignty and security in their lives again. And so it was a really exciting moment of just like finally stepping into what I feel like was a real doctor's role for a moment of instead of like trying to over-technify and over solutionize the environment around my patients, I was, I was finally doing something that felt like giving power back to my patients and giving them the opportunity to find uh, something other than a codependent relationship with me and the pharmaceutical companies behind me. And so that was an exciting era. But two years in, I found my patients failing drastically on health food. Uh, you know, kale salad causing bloating, inflammation, you know, worsening of clinical conditions, brain fog, et cetera. And patients that had florid, you know, inflammation to start with and were eating things like Twinkies and Little Debbie's as their main food intake because this county literally doesn't have, you know, a grocery store available. And so a lot of the people are eating out of gas stations and the like. So they're eating like the worst food on the planet. And yet when I transition them to a health food, they, they get worse, not better. And so in that journey, we started to ask tough questions about what's in the food or what's missing from kale today that's making it act like this. And that's when we got into soil science, uh, understanding that all of the alkaloids that are supposed to be in kale to function as an anti-inflammatory, for example, uh, are missing. We have just fractions of a percent of what used to be in kale in the 1960s when all the science started to debut. And so what had happened, of course, the answer became, you know, chemical farming took over. We destroyed the microbes of the soil through herbicides, pesticides, and we would ultimately, you know, denude the plant life of its nutrient density in that journey, and we would fail to have medicinal quality of our plants. Couple that then with a water-soluble toxin like glyphosate that would end up in the matrix, the water matrix of vegetables and fruit and can't be washed off, and now is, is opening up the gut. And so we've shown that glyphosate creates the leaky gut phenomenon. It, it sensitizes us and creates the phenomenon of gluten sensitivity, celiac, all the subsequent cancers through this permeability of the gut. What we found as we started diving into the soil science, however, was something really incredible about the medicine in nature. And what we had found was that there was carbon molecules in the soil that looked a lot like the chemotherapy I used to make. And the idea that there was possible that there was medicine and, and dirt was a really exciting new paradigm, especially as we dug in deeper. At, uh, as I didn't intend that a little twist on words there, but as we dug in deeper to the soil science, we realized that the carbon molecules that had this redox potential were being made by the microbes. And so that kind of closed my whole loop on cancer um, understanding. And we started to explore the possibility of getting redox signaling capacity back in these carbon molecules made by as metabolites by bacteria and fungi in soil and in gut. And in that journey, we found out that, uh, in fact, the microbes are making that communication network, that redox signaling environment for the extracellular matrix. As soon as you get the oxygen and hydrogen back on those carbon molecules, you can see, you know, in, in our you know cancer studies that we started in with cancer tissue, but then it got much more exciting when we started putting it on healthy tissue, was that cells were responding in a way to this stuff that we had never seen cells respond, period. Because what was happening was that we were turning on endogenous, intrinsic capacity for health and healing within the cell, not because the me or the supplement was turning things on, but because the communication network between the cells was allowing one cell to effectively talk to another cell. And when you get that cell-cell communication and start to get a population response to an injury, it knows exactly how to repair. And so within seconds of introducing this bacterial microbial communication network, 
we would see tight junctions, you know, just expressing at 300, 600% of anything we had ever seen or measured before in cell culture. And suddenly you got these cohesive small intestines, colons, renal tubules, vascular and uh, blood brain barrier, the whole thing going right back together again with a resilience that we had never seen before. And it became very obvious that we had come to understand human disease in the context of human cells in a sterile petri dish. We had never realized the potential of human cell vitality, regeneration, and regulation for health in the context of a communication network in the microbiome because we had for too long been studying humanity, humanity in a sterile petri dish. It is time for us now to really celebrate a new era where we're understanding that human physiology is radically different when rooted in a, a diverse microbial communication network. And so we extract that carbon matrix out of fossil soils predating the last extinction 60 million years ago. And we then put that through oxygen hydrogen catalysts to, to get the, the redox potential back on those carbon molecules. And when you then put that into animals or humans or soil, you see this explosion of biodiversity in the microbes. You see an explosion of protein diversity and, and, and regulation and you know, repair going on endogenous to the human system. And so it's, it's this phenomenal experience where I haven't created anything. My scientists and engineers haven't created anything. We've simply recognized this beautiful thing in nature and brought it into its potential again through basically respecting its original origin and then allowing it to do gentle work instead of like trying to give, you know, 25 grams of vitamin C, simply let the microbes begin the work of communication. Let the microbes begin the work of re-identifying the human identity as the gut membrane, you know, get gut barrier reforms itself with the, uh, the expression of tight junctions within minutes of introduction of the wireless communication network. And then let the immune system adapt to a non-chronic inflammatory state, rebuild the reservoirs. We've shown that within minutes of introduction, you get upregulation of lysine and carnitine, which are critical for immune modulation and protein synthesis and all these things. But then you get also get an explosion of things like you know, glutathione and all of these other things that we thought were so hard to uh, regulate, upregulate. And so we are, we're giving IV glutathione and all these things, when in fact the cells are capable of making that in the gut, in the liver, in the vasculature, in the brain. And so we just didn't know these cells had this capacity for you know, antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, all that, until we started to realize that they were supposed to, and of course developed within the connectivity and, you know, by vibrant life force of the microbiome itself. Mm -hmm. So that would then birth the ion gut health and the ion sinus spray that you mentioned. And these are the first supplements that are really designed not to do anything to you. Instead, they're there to reconnect you to your endogenous intrinsic capacity for health and healing. And it's been a humbling journey to watch nature do her thing. And for the first time, I feel like as a physician, I'm starting to really step out of the way with my technologies and everything else and let nature show us the path in which biodiversity and its communication between that biodiversity allows for life to spring forward. And isn't that how it must have began on Earth? And isn't that what's happened after every one of the you know five great extinctions that have predated this one? And so after every extinction, we see more life and more intelligence on Earth, not less. And so I, I know that's because of the biome. The biome is there as an adaptive force. And so when we put an extinction level stressor on all of the organisms on Earth, the amount of adaptive opportunity that's produced by that stress of, of an extinction event lays the foundation for an explosion of life on the other side. As the toxicity resolves over millions of years to follow, life returns in more abundance for the new genomic information on the planet. 
And I think we're in the midst of that. If we were to change our behavior today, reverse our education, energy, information era into a, a template made by and designed by nature, where we have regenerative systems rather than extractive systems, we could actually be witness in the next couple of you know centuries to the most vibrant explosion of life on Earth. And we might see not just human health surpassing anything ever imagined. We might see life on Earth returning to a biodiversity or becoming a biodiversity that's never been before. It's the ultimate, you know, optimistic ending, you know, to what we're, you know, what we're in and um, what you shared about Ion. It's really the, uh, the whole theory of biological medicine, right? So remove the roadblocks and allow the body to self-regulate and heal. And so you're creating a, you know, you're optimizing self-regulation with um, the product you've shared with us. And so I know we're wrapping up here, but I just want you to just share one more thing that you've done, which I really admire that your work with um, Farmer's Footprint and how you're taking all of this knowledge and also trying to really rebuild um, the soil, which is uh, so important uh, for our microbiome and in our terrain. So just a, a note on that. Thank you for the opportunity to mention it. Farmersfootprint.us is the website. That's our first project within a, a much larger mission, uh, 501c3 nonprofit uh, that is uh, rolling out projects within the areas of soil, water, and air. And we're really working on root cost uh, solutions in both awareness, activation of the public, consumer base, as well as information and education to uh, regulators, as well as support for new technologies that will fundamentally change the environments of our, our soil, water, and air systems. Uh, our first project, Farmer's Footprint, was a storytelling mission to explain the opportunity that we have, that the solutions are already sitting right in front of us as to how to reverse the chronic disease and acute vulnerability of disease that we have as humanity through care of our soils. And so the farmers are ahead of the game here, fortunately, in small groups around the world at having done 30 to 50 years of science around how you allow microbial diversity and then diversity within the flora and the fauna of the land to return a vitality never seen in farming history to that land in a very short period of time, three to five years more vibrant capacity within that soil to produce life than had been seen in generations before. And so we just have this real excitement that despite the scale of the crisis we've created through agricultural systems of chemical farming, and chemical food systems, the opportunities to repair that and heal that are logarithmically faster and more powerful than, than the damage we've done. And so in the end, Mother Nature continues to show her resilience and her grace for human behavior and keeps asking us to rejoin her in a mission towards a co-creative species, and one, one which does not see itself constantly in conflict with and you know at war with this Mother Nature we're born within. And so... She's ready to welcome us back with open arms. Farmersfootprint.us, we'd love for you to take a look at the, the first of the film series there and get acquainted with that initial project. And then uh, and uh, your support would be much appreciated in the farming community as we continue to create projects um, around the nonprofit and within the nonprofit to create an architecture of an environment that will allow for the universal adoption of, of regenerative practices over the next decade in the United States and beyond. We got this, right? So, well, thank you so much, Dr. Bush, for joining us. And you've just shared so many wonderful points of how to really look at, you know, our terrain as the foundation for our resilient health, not only within our individual bodies, but also in the healing that the planet so, so needs right now. 
Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Zach Bush. And if you want to find both of us, we are going to be um, at Paleo FX in Austin at the end of April. And we have a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about the event. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast and being part of my community.